0: Thanks, John. Some of you guys are wondering why does Andy have a mask on? I woke up Friday morning with some sniffles, and of course, my first thought was probably what you guys were thinking: Is do I have COVID? And so I took a COVID test. It was negative, but it did get me thinking: Like, what would I do if I had COVID? Craig's on a sabbatical. He's on his 11th day of sabbatical. He'd be the one that would record me. So I had all these, you know, worst-case scenario things going through my mind. But our our staff policy is: If you have any sniffles on a Sunday morning you shove a mask on just to protect other people. So that's why I have a mask on. I feel absolutely fine today, but just as a precaution, I keep the mask on. Uh, let me give you a little bit of insight about how I prepare for messages. Uh, typically when I study and prepare for a message on Sunday, I, have, I spend a lot of time cutting back all the things that I want to say. I normally have way more information than I had time for, and you, have, you experienced a little bit about that uh, last week. Uh, I work really hard trying to figure out the difference between what could be said and what should be said, what's needed and what isn't. Well, today, because of what I'm going to talk about this morning, I'm going to say all of it. This morning, I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about Democrats and Republicans, Trump and Biden. (laughs) I thought maybe you guys would think I was serious. I am absolutely kidding. I was hoping some of you would be a little uncomfortable. Maybe some of you were. Uh, By the way, the Bible never mentions either party. (laughs) What I am going to talk to you about this morning could have some of us uncomfortable. Because maybe you've been taught something about this belief that we're going to talk about, and it's kind of seeped into you. And what is a secondary faith issue has become, for you, a first-order issue. Now, this belief that is actually a secondary issue faith issue feels like, man, this is, you know, it impacts my faith. A first order issue, by the way, is something that determines our faith on who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what he still wants to do. And so maybe you've been taught this belief. Maybe you've heard this belief and you even believe what the Bible says is true. Like everything you've been taught, like that's what it says, but it still upsets you. It makes you uncomfortable. Maybe this belief we're going to talk about this morning has been used as a weapon to demean. Maybe it's been used to discourage or disconnect you from something you might even feel like God has created you or gifted you in. Well, here's what I'll say to all of us no matter where you land on this belief we're going to talk about this morning is just just listen. Don't shut down, don't rush to conclusions, don't let your mind race, don't assume. Hear me out, listen to the journey. Listen to all the different positions and beliefs there are. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus this morning, or maybe you're new here to Blue Ash Community Church, then this morning you're going to see behind the curtain a little bit of how humans can really complicate things. And how difficult we can make things that, again, I believe is a secondary faith issue, not a first order issue. So no matter where you are in your faith, my hope is what you see is an authentic search for what God intended. And I say authentic purposely, because as your shepherd, as your pastor, as a pastoral advisory council, we have truly spent the better part of a year wrestling with this belief. We've earnestly sought God's truth. We've searched what the Bible says. We've read lots of different commentaries. We've listened to really respected leaders and podcasts on the subject. I've had countless conversations with other lead pastors over the years who are on both sides of this belief that we're going to talk about. I've asked question after question as to why they believe what they believe. I've prayed about it. This is what I mean by authentic. It's a true, honest, earnest, and open search for God's truth. Now, I'll share later where I am and where we are as a church on the subject, but I'll answer the question now, and you're like, how can I do that? I can do that by saying, I'm not 100% sure. I am not 100% certain that I am right or us as a pastor advisory council are right. But based on our authentic search for God's truth on this matter, this is what we believe. It's what we believe today. And I say that purposely because like all secondary faith issues, we hold it open-handed. Because I might learn something, I might experience something, God might reveal something to me that, will take, that would cause me to take this belief I have today and go, let me research authentically for God's truth on this subject. Does all that make sense? Are all of you excited or nervous? Well, let's pray before I jump in. God, just come right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, no matter where we are in this belief system, would you help us just open-handedly, Say, God, we are searching for you authentically, for you to speak to us, to reveal what your truth is on the matter. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Andy. If it's your first time joining us online or in person, we're so glad you're here. If you don't have a Disciples Bible, you want to grab one in the back. That will help you in our reading plan. Uh, if you don't have one and you're watching online, go to BACCBible.com. Fill out that information. We'll get one to you. We're headed to 1 Timothy chapter 2 on page 1890 in your disciples bible we're in our series house arrest where the apostle paul who writes most of the new testament specifically the letters we're looking at and he's under house arrest but he didn't allow that to impact what he feels like god wants to do in him and through him so he writes these letters to different communities or different people and because of that we now have them in our bible to impact our faith and this letter we're going to look at today is first timothy which was written to advise timothy about issues or challenges in the church in Ephesus about false teachers. But to better explain what's going on, we're going to watch our friends at Bible Project, and they're going
1: to fill us in. Traveling about and starting new churches, and he developed... Paul's first letter to Timothy. Paul spent many years traveling about and starting new churches, and he developed a large team of co-workers in this mission. Timothy was one of these. Paul was once in the city of Lystra, and he met Timothy's faithful mother and grandmother, and he was impressed by Timothy's passion and devotion to Jesus. And so Paul mentored him for many years and eventually started sending him on missions to different churches. And so when Paul got word about a group of leaders who infiltrated the influential church in Ephesus They were spreading incorrect views about Jesus and what it means to follow him He sent Timothy to confront these leaders and restore order to this church So after Timothy arrived there, Paul sent this letter to follow up and instruct him on how to fulfill this mission The letter has a really cool design, there's an opening and closing commission to Timothy to go confront these leaders and their bad theology, and then these surround two large central sections that are full of really practical instructions about the problems that Timothy faced in the Ephesian church. And then finally, all these sections are linked together or concluded by a series of three poems that each exalt the risen Jesus as the king of the world. Let's dive in and you'll see how it works. Paul opens by recalling how he sent Timothy to Ephesus to confront these leaders who were spreading their strange teaching. And he describes how these guys are obsessed with speculating about the Torah, specifically the early stories and genealogies in the book of Genesis. And as we'll see, they had developed all kinds of weird teachings about food and marriage and sex that weren't consistent with the teachings of Jesus or the apostles. He even names some of these people, Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he describes how their teaching has It's divided the church, it's generated controversy. And Paul says this is actually the first clear sign that their teaching is distorted when genuine Christian teaching is done, it's faithful to the way of Jesus and it results in love and genuine faith. And he says the purpose of the Torah anyway isn't to fuel speculation. Rather, its purpose is to expose the truth about the human condition, as it did for Paul. Correct teaching about the Torah will lead people to see the grace of God revealed in the Messiah who came to save sinful broken people. And so Paul closes here with a poem that honors King Jesus over all and he calls Timothy to shut these men and their false teaching down. He then addresses very specific problems in this church caused by the false teachers. First of all, he calls Timothy to hold regular church prayer gatherings, to pray for the governing leaders of Rome and for peace because peace in the land creates an ideal setting for Jesus' followers to keep spreading their message about the God of peace who wants all people to be saved, the God who sent Jesus as the only mediator to give his life as a ransom for all. In contrast to the false teachers, Paul reminds Timothy that God wants to rescue the whole world and prayer is going to keep this at the forefront of their minds. Paul then addresses problems related to men and women who are being influenced by these corrupt leaders in Ephesus. So he first shuts down a group of men who are getting drawn into angry theological disputes started by the teachers. He says these guys should learn how to pray. Then he confronts a group of wealthy women in the church who were treating the Sunday gathering like a fashion show. They were dressing so upscale that they would shame most of the other people who couldn't afford such a wardrobe. And not only that, but some of these women were also usurping leadership positions in the church and they were teaching others the bad theology of the corrupt teachers. And so Paul shuts these women down. He says they should not teach or lead in the church. And then he goes on to explore the story of Adam and Eve the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is one of those sections in Paul's letters where like Peter said, he's kind of hard to understand. There are many different views about what Paul meant here. Some think that Paul is prohibiting women from ever teaching or leading men in any church, and that his comments about Adam and Eve are about how God has ordered that only men should be leaders in the church. There are others who think that Paul is prohibiting women from having leadership authority over men in a church, but that once educated, women should and can teach as leaders in a church under male leadership. And there are still others who think that Paul is only prohibiting these women in Ephesus, and that his comments about Adam and Eve are a comparison of how these women have been deceived by the false teachers. Whichever view you take, Paul is clear that these Ephesian women need to come under Timothy's leadership and get a proper theological education. And the goal is to help them grow so that they could one day become like the outstanding female ministers that Paul mentions in his other letters, like Phoebe or Junia or Priscilla. Paul continues to address this leadership crisis, and he calls Timothy to appoint a small, healthy team of husbands and fathers who will act like elders or overseers for the church. These should be men of outstanding character and integrity, and they will work alongside a team of Deacons. It's a Greek word that means servant. And these are men and women who actually lead and do the ministries of the church. And they are to have the same kind of character as the elders. And all together, these people should be known for healthy relationships in their families because that will demonstrate their ability to lead in the church, which is God's family. And the way of life that they live all together, it's consistent with the story about Jesus, which is explored in the closing poem, about his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation as king, and then the spread of his new family throughout the whole world.
0: You can watch the rest of that video, Bible Projects. If you haven't downloaded their app, I encourage you to do that as well. Uh, this morning, I'm going to sit in this stool because this isn't like a typical kind of message. Today's really a conversation as we take you through the journey that I've been on for a, a bit and the journey we've been on as a church leadership team. And so this isn't like your, your typical sermon. So I feel like sitting down communicates that a little better. I want to list, relist the three most common views that they just shared in that video, uh, specifically as it relates to women in ministry. The first view they mentioned was women should never lead or teach men in any church. That the reference to Adam and Eve and the birth order, that God ordered things that men should be the leaders and women should not. The second view was women shouldn't lead, but with education and time, they can teach under a male leadership. The third one was these Ephesian women, specifically that Paul is talking about, shouldn't lead because they've been deceived by the false teachers in Ephesus. And I want to remind you that these three different views are held by very respected, well-known theologians, pastors, educated men and women, people that are way smarter than I am, and you can see each of these can take different viewpoints or beliefs as it relates to women in ministry. So much so that, again, the smartest, most educated people do not agree on this specific belief. So with all of that, let's head to the Bible and read it for ourselves, and then we're going to discuss these views. Now while we read it, let's authentically look, let's ask for God to reveal his intentions with these verses that, he's t- that Paul's giving to Timothy as it relates to the church in Ephesus and us today. We're going to jump in Timothy 2, verse 8. It says, "Therefore, Therefore, since the men are being drawn into these theological arguments... I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls or expensive apparel, but with good works as is proper for men or for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly in full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed or sinned. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and good sense. First off, I want to point out there's a lot of very practical things that we can take from this section. Verse 8 alone is a great practice. It said, therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. I mean, think about the next time you find yourself in some kind of theological argument, or any argument for that matter. What if instead of arguing, we spent a few minutes praying? We lifted up holy hands without anger or arguing. I mean, how differently do you think the outcome of those conversations, those arguments, would be? Paul is continuing the theme of prayer, which started the chapter, and he's focusing on public worship in the church. To pray with holy hands lifted up to God may seem a little unusual, but in fact, it was the accepted way of prayer among the Jews and earliest Christians. In Old Testament times, prayers were made with their faces pointed toward heaven and their palms turned upward with outstretched arms. This conveyed their longing for God's blessing Quite often, hands were used to symbolically show the humble attitude of the person that was praying. But these men who prayed needed holy hands. In other words, they needed to be clean before God. In Timothy's context, the outward forms of prayer needed to be authentic and absent of anger and controversy. Paul's concern here indicates that the spiritual life of the Ephesian church was being undermined by ineffective prayer False and divisive teaching. Paul desired that men alone in this instance should pray. And this is where our first challenge of what Paul is saying kind of reveals itself. Because this seems really to contradict what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you go back and read it, where Paul stated that women who prayed or prophesied should do so with their heads covered. See, this is why we can't take one verse. Without the full context of the paragraph, without the full context of the chapter, without the full context of the book, without the full context of the Bible, and apply it. If we just pull a verse out of its full context, it can be misapplied uh, in a lot of different ways in life. Further still, we can't take one verse without the context of the fullness of God's character that's been revealed to us throughout Scripture. Further still, we still can't take one verse out of context without comparing it to the very life of Jesus, all of his teachers, and the Holy Spirit. We also need to remember that Paul is writing to Timothy in the context of what's happening in that Ephesian church. Now, what a lot of theologians think is what likely is happening here is recently converted women tended to interrupt the service with improper questions or remarks. And Paul is urging them to defer to men. But he was not genuinely refusing to let women participate in public prayer. Now let's pause here for a moment and make another quick observation about biblical times and ask ourselves a few questions before we move forward. Who were the educated people at the time? Who were most likely to know how to read? Who were the people that did most of the training, equipping, and teaching? Men. We have to remember that the vast majority of the world was illiterate at the time. The vast majority of the world suppressed women as a cultural rule. So it makes sense that Paul's instructing Timothy that women should learn under a man's teaching. Because they likely couldn't read, but men could. It also should be noted that this verse does not limit prayer to clergy or elders, but encourages prayer from laymen. Then we bump up against how women should dress, kind of the second issue as we move along. It said, also, women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense. Not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. I've been asked the question, obviously, does this mean women can't wear gold or pearls or get their hair done or wear nice clothing? Again, remember who it is written to and what problem they're trying to solve. The men were to show their right attitudes with holy hands. That's what Paul was saying. The women in the Ephesian church were to show their holy attitudes with modest outward appearances. Paul was emphasizing that inner character was far more important than outward appearances. Women's standard for dress was to be characterized by decent and appropriate clothing. Paul's appeal here is to good taste and good sense within that cultural norm. Women believers were to dress their behavior in a manner that complemented rather than clashed with their character. Women who worship in the church should not be dressed in seductive or sexually suggestive clothing. They were not to detract from the worship experience by drawing attention to themselves. Stating that women in in Ephesus not fix their hair, wear gold, have pearls on, or have expensive clothes meant their emphasis should not be on how they looked, but instead on who they were. This is yet another example that these instructions must be understood in the light of the whole Bible. Jesus didn't come to just set men free. He also came to set women free. He treated women as human beings. He recognized and responded to their needs as human needs. He taught women and included them as his followers. He he proved himself to be their savior too. The accepted view of women in the time of Jesus was as property other than people. Jesus personally shattered that conception. The gospel offered women the gift of personhood. They, too, were worthy of salvation. Paul's instruction in another letter to uh, the Corinthian church talks about women in ministry. Paul's instructions to the Christian women here in Ephesus must be read in both their immediate and larger contexts before we apply them. The immediate context is this specific church in Ephesus, which was suffering from the effects of false and divisive teaching. And they were using women. These women were also affected by their personal experiences within the Ephesian culture. They would have struggled as much as with cultural conditioning as we do. The larger context includes what Paul taught elsewhere about role and place of women in the church. One key statement occurs in one of Paul's letters in Galatians where he says, there is no longer male or female, you are one in Jesus Christ. Modesty and self-restraint are for everyone at all times, but these specific prohibitions were applied to the church in Ephesus. It could be possible that some Christian women in the Ephesian church were trying to gain respect by looking beautiful rather than becoming Christ like in character. Some may have thought, hey, I can win a husband to Christ simply by the way I look. Additionally, Paul may have been referring to particular styles in, in Ephesus that were associated with prostitutes or local temples. Artemis was the goddess. Of Ephesus. Considered the goddess of fertility, she was represented by a carved figure with many breasts. A large statue of her would have been in the great temple in the city of Ephesus. The temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The festival of Artemis involved wild sexual parties. Obviously, Christian women should not look like or even copy the styles of these kinds of people. While there's nothing wrong with a Christian woman wanting to look nice, Paul is saying women must examine their own motives. Today's world still places a great emphasis, especially in our culture, on beauty. Christian women, while they can still dress nicely and take care of their appearance, must at the same time not let their appearance become all-encompassing. They must not enhance their appearance merely for sex appeal or attention-getting. A carefully groomed and well-decorated exterior is, an, is artificial and cold without an inner beauty. Scripture nowhere does not prohibit a woman from wanting to be attractive. Beauty, however, Scripture is very clear, begins inside of a person. I also want to acknowledge that up to this point, there's not a whole lot of controversy. A lot of pastors and theologians are like, I'm with you so far. We're all in agreement. Most pastors I've talked to would agree that Paul's statement about how women should dress is cultural to what's going on in Ephesians in this Ephesian church at that time. But keep in mind as we look at these verses following those three views we talked about earlier. Let's continue on. It says a woman a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Wouldn't that sound loving, right? Like But let's get our shovels out together and let's dig into what's going on here. Women, many women, have read these verses and been distressed. Maybe you've been taught these things and maybe you even believe these things. Maybe you've been hurt by these beliefs. And if you have been hurt, I just, you know, I'm sorry that you have been. However, we have to understand that these verses, we must better understand the situation in which Paul and Timothy worked. What was going on? What's their environment? In the first century Jewish culture, women were not allowed to study. I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but that was the culture at that time. But now think about our own culture and our own country. It wasn't too long ago that women couldn't vote. That's what was going on there. Jews and Gentiles at the time regarded it disgraceful for women to discuss issues with men in public. That was their culture. The Jews were even more strict. They didn't allow women to teach male children past the age of five. When Paul said that women could learn, he was affirming their, and, and affirming their recognition as teachable members of the church. Now, it may not seem like it, but that was radical. Christian women were given equal rights with men when it came to studying the Holy Scriptures. This was an amazing freedom for many of the Jewish and Gentile women who had become Christ followers. But there were several problems in the Ephesian and Corinthian churches that made teaching in this area very difficult. Some women, converted Jews, had grown up in an atmosphere repressive towards women. Suddenly now these women were experienced freedom in Christ. Some may have overreacted, flaunting their freedom, disrupting the church services. In addition, some women may have been converts from cult or temple prostitution or practices, which was so widespread in these major cities. These women may have been immature in their faith and doctrine as Christians. They needed to learn, not teach. Women were to maintain silence and not disrupt the worship service. They were to speak, pray, or prophesy only when it was from the Spirit, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. This view is widely accepted still by all three views that we discussed. Where the water begins to muddy is when we ask this question. Is what Paul is saying to Timothy at that time, was it because of their culture? Or is it for us now? Is this how we're to structure our church leadership in our church in this current culture, in this current day? And it's here that the beliefs begin to differ. Because in several places, Paul wrote about women in the church who were co-workers, helping him in Romans chapter 16 and contending beside him for faith in Philippians chapter 4. Paul said that women were co-heirs in the image of Christ, that they were full members of the body of Christ, and that they they, they fully shared in the responsibilities and gifts of serving. But it did say women were to, re- to learn quietly and submissively. Now the Greek word for quietly used here in verse 2 and in verse 12 means settled, calm, with voluntary restraint. Submission warns against presumptive and inappropriate grasping for authority. So the verse could easily read, a woman is to learn calm with voluntary restraint, while not grasping to be the teacher. Wouldn't we say that about anyone, right? Wouldn't we say that about anyone who is learning under a teacher? Wouldn't we want everyone to learn in a calm manner, with restraint, with, while not trying to grasp to be the teacher? Then the beliefs get more complex by what Paul says next. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed, which again means sinned. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Learn quietly. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, Paul says. Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was, he said. I mean, how do you get around that one, right? That one seems pretty clear. seems pretty clear when you read it, right? Or does it? Here's where things, for me, began to break down. It dawned on me that almost everyone I talked to about the verses that explained how a woman should dress and what they could wear, almost everybody I talked to said, yeah, that is absolutely cultural cultural situations to the Ephesian church about how they should dress. As a matter of fact, I honestly have never met anyone who said women should follow those rules, that they should dress accordance to what Paul said earlier in these verses. Not one. Everyone I've met, anybody I've had a conversation with, agrees that it was a cultural thing. So this got me to ask this question. If we're so certain, to the best of our ability to know, that Paul's direction about how women should dress is cultural, then how can we be so certain that Paul's address about women teaching and having authority isn't cultural? Right? I mean, that's the basic argument. Those that hold the position that women can't teach or hold authority over man use this verse, among others, for that argument. They believe this verse, unlike the previous verses about how women should dress and what they should wear, that these verses, they're not cultural. Now, personally, I have a very hard time just wrapping my mind around that fact, right? Like, how could that be cultural and then, like, the next sentence not be cultural? Just a sentence or two before was cultural in its address, but these next few sentences aren't? Another argument for women not to teach or hold authority over man is several references in the New Testament about the created order. Women came from man, man didn't come from woman. This, in all honesty, in some ways, is a very solid argument. Scripture is clear on who was created first and the responsibility that was given to Adam. Adam was given the command not to eat from the tree. He, in turn, told his wife, Eve, what God said. That's a pretty good argument. But I have two problems with this, though. Again, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean I am right. I'm just walking you through my thinking process, my authentic wrestle with this. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 again, and we'll back up to verse 12. It said, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. I mean, there it is. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Not only that, it clearly states that the woman was deceived. Now, we're deceived when we're misled. The woman was misled because she listened to the enemy, to Satan. But in the story of the fall, Adam was standing right there with her, right? He told her what God said. Hey, don't eat from this tree. And he stood there. He heard the snake deceive her, and he did nothing. Satan deceived. He misled Eve, no question. But on the other hand, Adam rejected and ignored a direct command from God. Eve didn't even make Adam eat from the tree. She simply handed him the fruit, and he willingly ate it. So personally, I'm not 100% convinced on the idea that the woman is the only one deceived, misled, or sinned. I believe that Paul is referencing here, he's using it as an illustration of how women were being deceived. How they were being deceived by false teachers, just like Satan the liar deceived Eve in the garden. Secondly, I think Paul has been clear in several places that where you were born didn't matter in the kingdom of God, right? Didn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. I can't get myself to say yes, that's true, and then say well that doesn't apply here. Personally, I can't get myself there. You know, if it doesn't matter if you were Jew or not, but it does matter. If you're male or female, that's just really hard for me to grasp, right? Thirdly, and maybe the thing that started this whole line of questions for me, is this question. Do I believe women and men carry different attributes of God? And that together, we make a fuller picture of who God is? Personally, I answer that question, yeah. I do believe believe men and women have different attributes, and together we make a fuller picture. Here's another way to look at it. In the new heaven, when Jesus returns, makes all things new, is there a hierarchy in heaven? Are men above women in the hierarchy of heaven? I do not believe there's a hierarchy in heaven. So if I believe there isn't a hierarchy in heaven that men and women aren't separated, but now equals. Why would God want there to be one here on earth? right? Jesus came to make all things new. Then why wouldn't we create the new heaven now where we could? In fact, the kingdom is described as both here and not yet. You've heard me talk about this. The kingdom is in process of being brought to its fullness here on earth. We get glimpses of heaven, but we'll never experience it in all of its fullness until Jesus re- returns. But this isn't just some distant thing to be dealt with later, but it's a place we're called to to live in now. We are citizens of heaven now, not of earth. We're called to be in, uh, to be, not be of the world, but in the world, right? I believe one of the ways we attempt to usher in the kingdom of God now is through prayer. We pray. It's the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But it doesn't get around the question. The question is still there. How do I explain the very clear language about I do not allow women to teach or hold authority over man? Let's look at the verse one more time. It says very clearly, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. There is something often lost in translation. And I think this for me is a good example of that. The statement, I do not let, is a part of series, a series of present tense commands in this chapter. Where earlier Paul uses language like, I urge, I want. Unfortunately, the translation here reads as if Paul wrote, I never permit a woman to teach. Also, the grammatical order in Greek for this phrase carries less force. Than our English one. In the Greek, it's better translated to teach a woman, I am not allowing. This better completes the thought, right, about attentive learning in verse 11. Not allowing, to me, in this instance, sounds like at this time. The woman in the Ephesian church were allowed to learn, but not teach men. Now, given the tension between the influx and recognition of women as fellow heirs of Christ within the church on the one hand and the serious problems being caused by false teachers on the other hand, Paul was affirming one right to learn and listen quietly while withholding another right to teach because of the conditions of the church at that time. They did not need more teachers. Instead, they needed to return to the fundamental truths of the gospel. Now, to be fair, some interpret this passage to mean women should never teach in the assembled church. However, other passages point to Paul allowing women to teach. For example, Paul's, Paul commended his coworker Priscilla, who taught Apollos, the great preacher. In addition, Paul frequently mentioned other women who held positions of responsibility in the church. Phoebe worked in the church as well as others. But what about having authority over man? Right? The expression have authority, found only here in the New Testament, implies domineering, forceful attitude, an abuse of authority. Of course, no one should be leading that has abusive authority over anyone. The danger Paul was counteracting included a competitive struggle for power within the church as women as women took their rightful place but conversely Paul nowhere teaches male authority over women expressed in harsh domination so Paul i believe wasn't saying they can't have positions of authority but rather they aren't to have positions of authority now because of the current challenges within the church and when they do take positions of authority they're not to have excessive, abusive authority over anyone. And on that point about women being saved through childbearing, this may be used, again, by some to subjugate women into a role of, hey, okay, just be a good mom, and that's kind of good enough. But what I believe Paul is actually referencing is the fact that we're all saved through the birth of a child, Jesus, through a woman, Mary. When we pursue him in faith and love and holiness... Right? So what does all this mean? Well, for me, and for us as a church, we hold a position that women can teach. Women can have positions of authority. But just like I wouldn't let a man without the fundamental beliefs, without the fundamental agreements, knowledge and practices of what we believe it means to be a follower of Jesus, just like I wouldn't let a man lead without those things, neither would we let a woman lead without those things. I believe the order of leadership has less to do with male or female and more to do with God in us. It's the authentic pursuit of Jesus. The authentic pursuit of his word and his spirit. It's taking our thoughts, our beliefs, and our action and aligning them with what the Bible says. It isn't about using the Bible to support what I believe and then going trying to find the verses that support it. It's about using the Bible to form our beliefs. We didn't go looking to the Bible to find the answer that women could teach. That was not our goal. We didn't go looking to say women could teach and hold positions of authority. We began to ask, what does Jesus intend? What does the Bible actually say? And like I said at the beginning... I'm not 100% sure we're right. There are great arguments on both sides of this issue. But I am 100% sure that we've searched. I'm 100% convinced we've asked. We've earnestly sought the actual truth. We've prayed. We've processed. I mean, we've had conversation after conversation. We've held one position switched to the other and back to the other one until we finally decide this is where we are. This is what we believe. We've looked at what we believe the Bible says on this issue. And as much as today this conversation was about women teaching and holding positions of authority, it's equally about our authentic pursuit of God's truth. It's our authentic pursuit of God's word and his spirit to form our beliefs. And it's not about if we like it or not. It's not about if we agree with it or not. It's about, is this what God's truth says? Is this what God's truth means? And then how do I live that out obediently in my, with my own faith and my own life? So grab your Connect cards. I know this wasn't like a typical message and, like, what's the application gonna be? I'll get there in a minute. But hopefully we've walked you through our process. You've seen the the extensive time that you know I've wrestled with this. You've seen the time that we've taken. It's again, it's been over a year as we've authentically pursued what we believe God says. And I believe there is a next step in all of this for all of us. But I want to walk you through the first one. Maybe today's the day that you accept Christ for the first time, that he died for you and your sins, that he wants to make you new, a new creation. He wants to make you a citizen in his kingdom. He wants to equip you to love others as he loved. If that's you today, mark that on your Connect card. Make sure you fill out the information on the front. Drop it in the offering when it goes by in a few minutes. We want to follow up with you. You're not meant to do this alone, and be sure to get some free resources in the back. The second next step is this. So I'm going to spend just a A little longer on this one. Authentically pursue God's word, his spirit, and his truth. We do that when we do our quiet time. I shared a little bit about kind of what God revealed to me in a a morning last week. But when we open ourselves up, when we go to scripture in the morning, and it's easy to check the box. And trust me, there are a lot of check box mornings for me. Right? Like it says I need to read this. I read it. Check the box. Glad I got that in. But when we can say, okay, God, we pray like, okay, God, I'm going I'm coming to your word today. I believe you have something for me. God, reveal your truth. God, move in my life. Shape me. conform my beliefs to your beliefs. Help me live out what's true, whether I like it or not. And there are lots of things in scripture I don't like, right? Put others above yourself. I don't like that one. I can do that easy with the people I like, right? But it didn't say if you like them. But just put others above you. Like, I don't like that one. But conform me. and we authentically come to God, I believe that's a posture that God can use, that God can start to, to form our lives. He can change our hearts. When we authentically come before him and go, God, I, I've messed up again. Or God, I sinned yesterday. You did, by the way. Every one of us sinned yesterday, right? Because we're not perfect. We we come in repentant heart. That's what I mean by authentically pursue God's word, his spirit, and his truth. I believe he'll start to move in us. He'll start to do things through us. That's what a disciple does. Third one's receive prayer. Lots of ways you can do that here this morning. If you're watching online, I encourage you to pray for each other. But if you're here, here's a, there's a spot on your connect card in the back. You can write out your prayer requests. I get all those. I do pray for those every single week. As do our prayer teams. There's a prayer wall in the back. You grab a tag, you write out your prayer requests. And if you want the church as a whole to pray for it, you leave the writing so that everybody can read it. And again, I encourage you all to go back there and read those and pray for them. If you just want the staff and the prayer teams to see it, make sure the writing's faced towards the wall. You can receive prayer, like in person. we we'll have prayer teams up here to my right and some in the back left-hand corner. It'd be honored to pray for anything. Maybe it's just that, like I want a posture of authentic pursuit of Jesus. We'll pray for that. Maybe you have healing. We believe God heals today. says it in here, so I believe he still does it now, right? His kingdom come. If we're made perfect there, I think he still wants to do some things here. We get glimpses of that. Not in his fullness until we're there. Maybe you have a praise report, right? Like, you've been praying for something for a while. We'd love to hear those and praise God for them. We'd love to hear where God's moving, where his kingdom is now. We don't have to wait on there's lots of ways you can email us prayer at blueashcc.com any prayer request you have. We have prayer thir- 30 sessions where we and prayer team members or staff will spend 30 minutes with you. We'll hear what's going on and we'll pray with you. We schedule 30 minutes, prayer 30s. So we haven't talked about that in a long time, but if you want a prayer 30 session write prayer 30 on the back of your connect card drop in the offering when it goes by follow up we'll schedule the time we'll hear what's going on we'll lay hands on you and we'll pray for you we believe god moves in big ways sometimes he only does things through prayer he even said oh this happens through prayer so i was like how come we couldn't do it receive prayer cross the line of faith or line of fear go get prayer watch what god does and the last one is Our memory verse, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Through how? Prayer prayer and petition with thanksgiving we present our requests to god lastly i want to talk about our communion if you grab your communion elements take those out if you didn't grab them you still want to you still can right when you walked in they're back there but we do this in remembrance of who jesus is and what jesus did that he willingly walked to a cross he willingly gave up his body he willingly gave his blood they didn't take his body they didn't take his life he gave it So this is a reminder that he gives us life. He's the one who sustains us. The wafer represents that his body that was broken for us, and the juice represents the blood that was shed. And when we take it, we're certainly remembering all that he's done, but we're remembering that Jesus is still in us, that he wants to do a work in us, that he's still cleansing us, he's still making us new, to be conformed more and more into Christlike character. God thanks. Thanks that we can ask hard questions. God that we can even scream out with anger to you, that you, you have broad shoulders so that you can take it. God that you willingly, you lovingly take them. You love to hear from your kids. God, I believe you love it when, when we as your kids wrestle with, with your truth. Because God, when we're in that wrestling, when we come out the other side and we believe that we've heard from you, that we've authentically pursued, we've earnestly sought, God, that's just, it's a truth that's just embedded in us. So God, as we take some of these secondary faith issues to you, God, we hold them open-handedly. Convicted that that's what we believe, but at the same time, willing, Allowing you to teach us something different if we're wrong. To reveal to us where we're wrong. And for us to go back and earnestly seek to authentically find what we believe you're saying. God, help us. God, you're the author of truth. Come by the power of your Holy Spirit. Remind us whose we are. Remind us who you are. God, we open up our minds. We open up our our hearts. We give you our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go ahead and receive our offering. You're free to sit and stand and receive prayer. machine questions for Jesus, just being one of them. That's okay, right? May you leave here with an authentic pursuit of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what he wants to do in and through your life. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys mind
2: playing that again?